the headlines tonight. Yankee Doodle Dandy as Americans retreat from Ironworks Hill. George Washington resigns, but not from laundry duty. And allies take the cake at Magaba Bread. Plus, coming up, a shocking exclusive on how Cleopatra's cat stole the spotlight in ancient Egypt. Those are the headlines. Now step back from the news. A news bang. The only news source that makes sense. 1776. The American Revolutionary War took a bizarre turn today as British forces unveiled their secret weapon, overwhelming reinforcements. The cunning strategy proved too much for the outnumbered and outgunned Americans, who were forced to retreat from Ironworks Hill, also known as Mount Holly. The battle, which was part of a series of skirmishes in New Jersey, saw Hessian and British forces led by General Burke in trousers catch the rebels off guard with their sheer numbers. Eyewitnesses describe the scene as bedlam as George Washington's men, clad in their trademark red coats and white wigs, scrambled to escape on horseback and hovercraft. One bystander, Thomas Wiggy. Jefferson said, It was total chaos. I've never seen so many muskets and bayonets in all my life. The conflict is just one of many in the ongoing war for independence that has engulfed North America, the Caribbean, and even spilling over into the Atlantic Ocean itself. Experts predict more absurdity ahead as both sides dig in for a long and ridiculous war. 1783 General George Washington, the American Revolutionary War hero and future president, has resigned as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army. The resignation took place at the Maryland State House in Annapolis, a city best known for its crab cakes and proximity to Washington, D.C. Eyewitnesses report that Washington, visibly emotional, handed over his wig and wooden teeth to an astonished crowd before mounting his trusty steed, never mind, and riding off into the sunset. The resignation comes as a shock to many who believed Washington would lead the army until they'd won something or he'd had enough. Instead, he's opted for a quiet life at Mount Vernon, where he plans to grow potatoes and complain about taxes like everyone else. Historians believe this act of selflessness will be remembered as one of the most significant moments in American history, along with the time Betsy Ross sewed that flag after losing a bet. In other news... Uh, 1916. The year 1916, and its war, 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 Allied forces scored a big win at the Battle of Magdabadu in the Sinai Peninsula. That's the bit of Egypt that looks like a flipping boot. The Allies led by France, Britain, Russia, America and Japan, the axis of baffling allies, took on Germany, Austria-Hungary, two countries for the price of one, Turkey and Bulgaria. Bulgaria? Really? This bloody scrap was part of World War I, so-called because it was fought in a field full of poppies. Millions died, but don't worry, it paved the way for the Spanish flu pandemic two years later. So that's all right then. The battle itself was a right old ding-dong with both sides trading blows like drunk uncles at Christmas. But in the end, General Haig's men emerged victorious thanks to their cunning use of camels disguised as tanks. As for casualties, 1,500 dead on our side, 6,000 on theirs, though most were trampled by their own camels in the chaos. News bang! Taking the high road to the truth. And now... A word from our weather reporter, Shakanaka Giles, 
who's going to give us a glimpse of what's in store for us this Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve, we're expecting a winter wonderland across the nation. In the north, the snow will be falling thick and fast, as if the North Pole decided to give us a white Christmas. In the south, the weather will be crisp and frosty, just like a sprinkle of sugar on a gingerbread man. But be careful not to leave your carrots out for Rudolph, as the snow might freeze them solid. In summary, a white Christmas, frosty delights, and carrot-free nights. Merry Christmas, and that's all the weather. In 2008, the Guinean military staged a coup following the death of President Lansana Conte. The National Council for Democracy and Development took power, led by Captain Musa Dadis Kamara. They planned to rule for two years before an election. However, in 2010, Alpha Conde was elected as the new president. Joining us now on the line is our reporter Brian Bastable, who has more on this story. The news, it seems, is all about the military. The military has a lot of guns, the military likes to shoot people. And here in the middle of nowhere, the military is having a party. We arrived at the scene just as the first rockets were being fired. The sky was a canvas of flame. It was like the end of the world. As I drove here this morning with my four intestinal worms, there were clouds on the horizon, not the ones you normally see in these parts. These clouds were black, carrying the portent of a day of doom. But as I arrived at the war zone and stepped from my tank, a little girl appeared from among the rubble. In one hand, she held an ice cream cone, in the other, a grenade launcher. That's what this war is all about. We have it on good authority that this is the last day the war will rage. The combatants, with their eyes on the prize, know that tonight it will all end. For this is the climax, folks. The climax of our time in the cinema of war. This is the battle where the story was always going to end, and as the final act unfolds we can only watch, stunned into silence. All around us the soundtrack of death plays on. What more is there to say? This is the big one. And as the sun sets, we can see the men in their camouflage gear moving through the rubble. They are like shadows, silent and deadly. They are the ones who will decide the outcome of this war. They are the ones who will decide the fate of this country. And as the night falls, we can only hope that they will make the right decision. That they will put down their guns and embrace peace. But for now, we must leave you here in the middle of nowhere with the sound of gunfire in your ears and the smell of death in your nostrils. We will be back with you tomorrow to bring you the latest news from the front line. Until then, good night. Brian Bastable, Newsbang. 1990. In 1990, a significant event took place in Slovenia. A referendum was held for the people to vote on their nation's future. 
an overwhelming majority of 88% of eligible voters chose to secede from Yugoslavia, a socialist state in Central and Southeast Europe that was made up of six constituent republics. This decision marked a turning point in the region's political landscape. Joining us now is our correspondent Hardiman Pesto, who has been following this story closely. Well, that's right, Martin. And it's a significant moment in the history of Slovenia. I don't doubt that. But Pesto, what I'm wondering is how does this referendum affect the rest of the world? Well, it's not just about Slovenia, Martin. This is a watershed moment for Yugoslavia as a whole. It could lead to a domino effect of secessionist movements throughout the region. And what about the international community? How are they reacting to this? There's been a mixed response, Martin. Some countries have recognized Slovenia's right to self-determination, while others have expressed concern that this could lead to further instability in the region. And what about the future of Yugoslavia? It's hard to say, Martin, but many experts believe that this referendum could be the first step towards the eventual dissolution of Yugoslavia. Pesto, you seem to be well-versed in the history of Yugoslavia. Can you give us some background on this region? Well, Yugoslavia was a socialist state that was created after World War II. It was made up of six constituent republics, including Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Montenegro, Serbia and Macedonia. So, Pesto, what do you think the long-term impact of this referendum will be? It's difficult to say, Martin, but many analysts believe that this could be the beginning of a new era of instability and conflict in the region. Pesto, thank you. That was an informative interview. Thank you, Martin. See, not that hard, was it? Newsbang, the truth as it happens. Ryder Boff is here to take you back to the day when Ian Craig became the youngest test cricket captain for Australia. Get ready for a thrilling journey to the past as we relive the excitement of that historic moment in cricket history. Ladies and gentlemen, today is Saturday. Wear a smile. We're live from the past, where the year is 1957. Ian Craig became the youngest test cricket captain for Australia. The Australian national cricket team is one of the oldest in test cricket history. The team draws its players from domestic competitions and is currently the ICC World Test Championship and ICC Cricket World Cup champions. Craig had a promising career but did not meet expectations and retired early. Test cricket is played between international teams and can last up to five days. Now let me take you back to the day when Ian Craig became the youngest test cricket captain for Australia. The crowd went wild as he walked out onto the pitch, looking every bit the part of a young up-and-coming cricket star. He had the world at his feet and everyone knew it. But little did they know behind that confident smile, Craig was struggling with a secret. He was battling a severe case of the nerves and it showed. He made a few mistakes early on, but he didn't let it get to him. Instead, he dug deep and found the strength within himself to overcome his fears. And as the day went on, he grew more confident with each passing moment. By the end of the match, he had proven himself as a true leader and the crowd was on their feet, cheering his name. But enough about Ian Craig, let's talk about me for a moment. You see, I was there that day watching from the stands. I had never seen anything like it before. The excitement in the air was palpable and I could feel my heart pounding in my chest. I was hooked on cricket from that moment on. I knew I had to be a part of it no matter what it took. And so... I spent the next few years practicing my skills and learning everything I could about the game. 
Eventually, I made it to the big leagues, and I've never looked back since. So there you have it, folks. The year is 1957, and Ian Craig became the youngest Test cricket captain for Australia. And while we may not have had the pleasure of watching him play, we can certainly appreciate the impact he had on the sport. And who knows, maybe one day we'll see another young star rise up and take the game to new heights. Until then, I'm Ryder Boff, and I'll see you next time. Polly Beep is here with travel news listeners. Tune in for a bumper evening of unexpected incidents on the roads. Stay safe and happy motoring. It's a bumper evening of travel news, listeners. Let's start with a rather unfortunate incident from the year 1984. The year is 1984. Aeroflot Flight 3519 crashed due to an engine fire shortly after takeoff, resulting in the death of 110 people. The fire was caused by a manufacturing defect. Krasnoyarsk where the flight originated from is the largest city in Krasnoyarsk Krai, Russia, and is known for its natural beauty and educational institutions. In 2019, it hosted the Winter Universiade. Now, let's get to the present day traffic and travel updates. It's been a busy day on the roads. On the A1, a curious sight. A flock of seagulls has taken a liking to the tarmac, causing delays as they attempt to play a game of chicken with passing cars. Meanwhile, the M25 is facing delays due to a rather unusual traffic jam. It seems a family of badgers has decided to take a leisurely stroll across the motorway, much to the frustration of commuters. The M40 is also proving troublesome. A sudden outbreak of sheep has taken over the road, resulting in a rather picturesque, if not inconvenient, scene. Motorists are advised to stay calm and patient as the fluffy roadblock is cleared. And finally, a rather peculiar event on the M11. It seems a local artist has decided to create a giant mural on the road, causing quite the traffic snarl up. Commuters are advised to take a detour and enjoy the unexpected street art. Remember, always keep your wits about you on the roads. And remember, it's not every day you get to see a badger roadblock or a giant road mural. This is Polly Beep signing off for now. Drive safe and happy motoring. News Bang, the unvarnished truth brought to you by the unvarnished. And now we turn our attention to the annals of history with Sandy O'Shaughnessy, your royal guide through time. Ah, uh, and a very good evening to you all. Welcome, welcome, and thrice welcome to the Royal Corner of Newsbang Radio. It's your old mate, Sandy O'Shaughnessy, taking you on another delightful journey through the annals of history. The sun has set over the rolling hills of Ireland, but fear not, for we're about to light up your evening with tales as old as time itself. So grab a cuppa, put your feet up, and let's wander through the past. Huh? <laughs> Now let's travel back in time to the year 583. Uh, do you remember Yolik Nal? No? Well, neither do I. But apparently she was quite the queen in Palenque, a Maya city-state nestled in the heart of southern Mexico. A city known for its temples, glyphs, art, <laughs> you name it. 
It seems like these Mayans had it all, even their own calendar and astronomical system. Ah. <laughs> ah, uh, but what would a royal be without her palace? Well, according to our research team, which consists mainly of my nephew Seamus, who fancies himself an archaeologist, Queen Yol Iknal lived in a rather grand abode, adorned with intricate carvings and murals depicting scenes from Mayan mythology. Now that's what I call living large. Ah. <laughs> Speaking of living large, have you ever wondered what it would be like to be a king or queen for just one day? To have people bowing and scraping at your every command? To wear a crown so heavy it could double as a doorstop? Well, folks, today is your lucky day because here at Newsbang Radio, we're giving one lucky listener the chance to experience life as royalty. Ah. <laughs> All you have to do is send us an email telling us why you deserve to wear the crown and we'll pick our favorite entry at random. So get writing, folks. Who knows? You might just find yourself ruling over your very own kingdom before bedtime. Ah. <laughs> but seriously now, let's return to our regal roots. As we sit here basking in the warm glow of Christmas Eve, or Nolignamban, as we say in Ireland, let us take a moment to reflect on those who came before us, those brave souls who built empires and left their mark on history. Ah. <laughs> and while we may never know what truly went on behind those grand palace doors or within those intricately carved stone walls, well, that's half the fun, isn't it? For in every story there is mystery, and in every mystery lies an invitation to explore further still. Ah. <laughs> so until next time, dear listeners, remember, life is but a tapestry of stories waiting to be unraveled, one thread at a time. From me, Sandy O'Shaughnessy, wishing you all a very Merry Christmas Eve and reminding you once again, see you later, alligator, in a wild crocodile. Hello Nineteen fifty-eight. In 1958, Tokyo Tower, the second tallest structure in Japan, opened. Inspired by the Eiffel Tower, it stands at a height of 333 meters and is painted white and international orange to adhere to air safety regulations. The tower's primary purpose is for communication and observation purposes without accommodating living or office spaces. It also excludes other structures like skyscrapers and transmission towers. Now let's hear from our reporter Smithsonian Moss on the significance of this iconic landmark in Japanese history. Now at this point of the evening we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, ladies, gents and folks who are somewhere in between. It's your girl, Smithsonian Moss, back in the groove and ready to bring you the hottest, freshest, and most fabulous culture report from the year 1958. That's right, we're going way back, baby. All the way to a time when Elvis was still shaking his hips and the Beatles were just a twinkle in John Lennon's eye. We're talking about the Tokyo Tower, the second tallest structure in Japan, and let me tell you, it's a sight to behold. This bad boy was inspired by the Eiffel Tower, but with a Japanese twist, of course. Picture this, a towering, white and international orange masterpiece, reaching for the sky like a phallic symbol of Japan's post-war prosperity. Now, you might be wondering, 
What's the deal with the colors? Well, my friends, it's all about air safety. The Tokyo Towers color scheme is a love letter to the world of aviation, ensuring that no unsuspecting pilots get their planes tangled up in the thing. It's like a giant glowing traffic cone, but way cooler. But here's the kicker, folks. This tower ain't no ordinary skyscraper. It's not designed for living or office work, which is a relief because imagine trying to commute to work on a tower that high. Can you even imagine the elevator rides? The Tokyo Tower is all about communication and observation, so you can gaze upon the city below and marvel at the human ingenuity that made this architectural marvel possible. So, what's the moral of this story, you ask? Well, it's simple, really. If you want to make a statement, go big, go bold, and paint your tower white and international orange. And if you're feeling extra adventurous, add some extra phallic symbolism to really make a splash. That's all for now, folks. Keep it locked on Newsbang for more culture updates, and don't forget to tune in tomorrow for our special report on whether God exists. Until then, stay fabulous, and remember, the sky's the limit, as long as you're not trying to build a skyscraper on it. News bang, the scalpel of truth cutting through the fat of fiction. And now, tomorrow's headlines. The Times. Soviet-Afghan war rages on, leaving Cold War on the rocks. The Guardian. Christmas truce brings temporary peace to WWI trenches. Spanish flu uninvited to no man's land. The Sun. Dufu's thatched cottage inspires poetic splendor in Chengdu. The Daily Mail. War-torn poet Dufu yearns for civil service amidst an Lucian rebellion. And finally, The Onion. Soviet Union loses its cool in Afghanistan, throws temper tantrum at the end of the Cold War party. And there you have it, folks. From all of us here at Newsbang, good night and remember, history is just a series of unfortunate puns waiting to happen. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.